Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me today is Boston Globe film critic Odie Henderson. Odie spoke with me from his hometown of Jersey City, New Jersey. He describes himself as, quote, a film critic who loves film noir, musicals, black exploitation, bad art, and good trash. A longtime critic for RogerEbert.com, Odie got his start writing movie reviews for the legendary and much-loved film critic Roger Ebert himself. In addition to being a member of the National Society of Film Critics, Odie's also been a computer programmer for more than three decades, and he's written about film for Slate, Vulture, The Village Voice, Slant Magazine, and The Criteria Collection. He's also appeared on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please follow and share. And now on to my conversation with Odie Henderson. Hello, Odie Henderson. Welcome to Making Media Now. Hi, thank you for having me. So, Odie, you have been, since October of this year, the film critic for the Boston Globe. So, congratulations on that. And, I, you know, I did some reading about you in preparation for this conversation. And I'm going to make a wild guess and say that uh, the path that you took to the your current position wasn't exactly an orthodox path for, in comparison to most film critics. Would you Would you agree with that? Yes and no. Yes and no. Let's let's hit the yes first, and then we'll talk about the no. Um, your decades long career in in IT. How did that work into your writing about film uh, so extensively, and then becoming a a full time professional film critic? Well, before I got hired, I wrote. I had a Chinsil website that I wrote reviews for. That it was mine. And then the blog era came along and I started writing for the Slant Magazine's House Next Door blog. And then I, I, I got a professional gig in, in 2008 where I was covering events of the day for a now defunct uh, website called Movies Without Pity. And so that was pretty much my first professional gig in 2008. That was a great website. Yeah. To Television Without Pity was its parent yeah. uh, site. And um, I wrote on the side. So I wrote on the side and I worked as a programmer full time. By this point, I was in Silicon Valley. I spent the last 16 years working for a company in Silicon Valley. And I wrote on the side. I wrote first for movies that I'll pity. And then I wrote for several other outlets. And then Roger Ebert hired me in 2011 to write for RogerEbert.com. And that's where I've been in the past 11 years before I got this gig. So... The yes part was it wasn't a, it was unorthodox that I would be a programmer who someone who majored in math and being a film critic. Right. And, and the no part was, well, I've been doing this for 16 years before I got this gig. So this is the first time where it's been the full time gig, the thing that was my primary job. 
Yes, the 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 uh, the typical sixteen year overnight sensation, right? <laughs> you know what's so. interesting about about you coming from the world of of, of being a, a programmer, a coder. Uh, I've worked with a, a lot of software developers and coders, etc., and almost all of them. Um, in addition to their their lives as writing computer code, um, are musicians or they're painters or they're 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 very creative. Um, did you find that in the circles that you worked with in the in, with the folks that you worked with in IT? Not really, but this is interesting. I know five classically trained pianists. Yeah, they all went to school. They got masters in classical music for piano and for guitar. And every single one of them wound up being a programmer. That's so they went from classical music that they still played, obviously, but they went from that world to being, it was just so odd. Well, maybe it's not because really music is math. Right. Yes, so exactly. Right. The you, you study that level of classical, you know, something like Chopin is or, or Rachmaninoff. This is very complicated. Yep. So looking at that and kind of translating it to something math oriented makes perfect sense. So people came from the opposite direction. They, they started out as artists of some sort and they wound up in IT. Mm-hmm. I, I went the opposite direction. I, I, I played a trumpet. I am not. Louis, Louis Armstrong or Miles Davis. I also play the piano and I stink <laughs> at that. I, I'm a good trumpet player, but I, I was always a writer. Even before I got into IT, I was always a writer. I've been writing since I was six years old. So this well, you're, was you're, always you're, in the background. You're like a parent's dream uh, in, in the sense that how many times have you heard when Parents hear that one of their kids wants to pursue a creative endeavor and they talk about, well, make sure you have something to fall back on. Well, my mom was even worse. And she said that writing was frivolous pursuit and I shouldn't do it. That's partially why I became a programmer. You know, I wanted to go to school, journalism school mm-hmm. and do all that. And I wanted to be a film critic. You know, by this point, Gene and Roger had convinced me that I wanted to be them and not Jimmy Breslin <laughs> uh, as I originally wanted to be. And my mom was completely against that. She wanted to be a lawyer and I did not want to be a lawyer. So I went into something she had no idea about. She has no idea how computers work or anything like that, but she just knew it wasn't writing. It wasn't writing. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, yeah, my mom was against that. It's funny. I, I talk, would talk to Roger about this and he would say his mom was against Roger Ebert. That is his mom was against him being a writer, too, but for a completely different reason. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you, you can understand the, um, the 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 parental urge for their kids to have something um, steady and reliable and perhaps, and lucrative you know, and right, exactly and, and more lucrative than uh, than than writing. I'm curious when you were growing up. First of all, where did you grow up? I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, which is where I currently am right now. I left Jersey City and vowed never to return, and I came back. <laughs> that's, that's a typical, vow, that's typical a vow story, that's been right? broken many, many times. The person Absolutely. vowing never to return to their hometown, and before you know it, they're returning to their hometown. Here we um, are. When you were growing up, did you read a lot of film criticism? Yes. I... I didn't read Roger because he wasn't in the paper at the time. Roger was still at the Sun-Times. Yep. Uh, Cinemania, the best thing Microsoft ever did, that disc where they combined Leonard Maltin, Pauline Kale, and Roger Ebert's writings yeah. was where I first read Roger, read him. I saw him on TV, obviously. Pauline yep. Kale was writing 
I'm, I'm old enough to remember when Pauline Kael was the film critic. So I read her. I read everything I could get my hands on. Rex Reed was in the Daily News. I read him. I read every possible critic I could get my hands on. And yes, yeah, so I read a lot. Um, I read a lot of different critic books. You know, Robin Wood had books out. Uh, Moulton had his guide every year. And then Roger started putting out his reviews later on, his books of reviews. Mm-hmm. And I'd read everything Pauline Kill had written. I had all of her books. And again, I was around when she was writing and her the New Yorker would be in the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that or highlights. Highlights in the New Yorker was an odd combination at the doctor's <laughs> Both office. Both ends of the spectrum. Exactly. Sometimes highlights was more interesting than the New Yorker, but never mind. When you were when you were reading these writers, um, all highly esteemed film critics, um, were you reading them as as a fan of the written word primarily or were you reading them as a movie lover and you wanted to get different takes on uh, from different critics on particular movies? More often than not was because of my love of the word, because Mm -hmm. I rarely ever agree with Pauline Kael. Okay. So it was fun to read her. I rarely ever agreed with her, but it was fun to look at how she would describe something or how she worded something. Yeah. I love the way words sound. Right. So when I found a writer that seemed to love the way words sound sounded, I was interested. Also, it was about what was available, you know. Who was in the paper? You got that paper here, the New York Daily News or whatever it was, and you had a star ledger and you read it. That mm-hmm. was what you had. This was before, you know, Wikipedia and the internet and all this stuff. We're talking about the 70s and 80s here. Right. So you read what you got. And I just happened to be lucky enough to get some really good stuff here in the New York area. How much of a determinant would be a particular writer's uh, take on a movie? Um, how much of a determinant would that be as to whether you saw a particular movie? Not not a lot, unless I'd never heard of it. Mm-hmm. For example, Stop Making Sense, the Jonathan Demme movie about the talking heads. Yep. I went to see that because Gene and Roger had championed it on this show. I didn't know who the talking heads were, even though they were around for quite a while. By the time I saw it, Stop Making Sense in 84, they had been around. I mean, Psycho Killer is, I think, 77. Yeah. Um, I just never heard of them. They just didn't travel in the circles of music that I was in. in. And it sounded very interesting. And I went and I came out a huge David Byrne Talking Heads fan. So when it was something that sounded interesting, I'd never heard of that took more precedence over whether or not they liked it. Mm hmm. Yeah. So you've mentioned Robert Ebert, uh, Roger Ebert, rather, a couple of times and Siskel and Ebert. I think listeners who aren't aware of both Gene Siskel's career and Roger Ebert's career as film critics, both for Chicago based newspapers, correct? Yes. And 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 they gained huge fame and notoriety for Siskel and Ebert or at the movies uh, where they would, you know, they would sit and they would each would give their take on the four or five movies that they would review every year. And they'd fight. Uh, and they that would was fight. the best part. Exactly. They'd fight. Yeah. And it was brilliant casting also because they, they sort of had this Mutt and Jeff quality. You know, uh, Siskel was, was, was tall and thin and balding and Ebert was shorter and squatter and had a full head of hair. <laughs> and they would be so passionate about their take on each of the films and almost – 
dumbfounded that the other guy, if he didn't agree with him, could possibly feel that way. And that was all real. That was not staged. These people were not actors. This is their emotions were real and raw. And when I when Roger hired me, I told him up front, you know, when you and Gene would disagree, I went with Gene. (laughs) And why did you go with Gene? Gene just seemed to when they had disagreements, Gene kind of lean more toward my taste of things yeah. than Roger did. Yeah. You know, it's just, I thought about that a lot when they would disagree more often than I would go with Gene. I got to read a lot of Gene's writing. Uh, I've been I was researching a book I was writing and uh, Gene reviewed a lot of things I was writing about. So I finally got to read him as a writer, mm-hmm. as opposed to just seeing him on television. And it's very interesting contrast between him and Roger as writers. Um, I would have been interested in reading him had I come across him as a kid. Would you say that each of their writing styles um, was evident in their speaking style on yes. in, in the way they came across on television? And talk a little bit about that. When you read Roger, it sounds like he's in the room with you and he's talking directly to you and nobody else in the world matters. Yep. And I wanted to emulate that as a writer myself to kind of it to be a conversation with the reader as opposed to it be me being shaking my finger and saying, you know, don't go see this. And you could hear that. And Gene was a sports writer, if I'm not mistaken, before he got the, the, the gig as a film critic, he fell into it. Yep. <laughs> he had not originally started out as a film critic. He was a sports critic and he writes like a sports writer. And there's a major difference between writing as a sports writer and writing as a film critic. I, I used to do a sports column and it's completely different than as a, as a film critic. There's and more you, stats. Is it, com- is it completely different because it's more nuts and bolts and yes. almost results oriented? And a lot of stats. So yeah. you ba- you can't bend something. If someone threw two touchdowns, if they threw two touchdowns yes, and you can make that sound colorful, but they still threw two touchdowns. Maybe it's me as the mathematician looking at it from a different perspective in terms of that something is quantified in sports writing. Whereas in, in the film criticism, I don't think there's much quantification. Absolutely. It's much more subjective, you know, in, in sports, a victory is a victory is a yeah. victory. No matter and, how ugly. <laughs> right. Exactly. As, as they say. So at what point, does, do you and your writing uh, appear on the radar screen of Roger Ebert? I had a blog. Mm-hmm. I still do have a blog that I wish I could write more for called Big Media Vandalism that was run by my friend Stephen Boone. And one day I decided back in 2008 that Stephen Boone, my, one of my favorite writers, every writer has a writer that keeps them up at night and makes them bring their A game. Yeah. And for me, that writer is Stephen Boone. He doesn't write as much as he used to. He's more of a director. But I was angry at him because I wanted more for his writing. And I said, I'm going to outdo you. I'm going to go take over your blog and I'm going to write a piece for 30 days. Okay. While I'm working as a programmer, I'm going to do this. This is your only gig and you're not turning out material. I'm going to do this now. Unbeknownst to me, Boone was on purpose. Let me do this because he wanted me to write. He's like my writing. And so I wrote this whole thing on movies I loved as a kid, uh, black movies specifically. Sure. And Roger's editor, uh, Jim Emerson, had a blog on Roger's website called Scanners. Mm -hmm. And Jim liked my writing. So he started to promote it on Scanners on his blog. And that's how I think Roger got a hold of me as a writer. 
and right. started to read my stuff. Yep. And so that's and, where the, the, the it could happen that trends, you know, how I got on Rogers radar as a writer. And were you able to form uh, a bond with him? Yeah, it's, it's great. He was a very giving mentor and, you know, there were a bunch of us. So obviously his time was spread out amongst all of us, but you never felt that way. Mm-hmm. He wrote him and he wrote you back. If you saw him at Ebert Fest or you saw him in person, he would, you know, by this point he had his pad and he would, you know, write something down on the pad and show it to you. You'd talk to him and he would talk back to you. And he was very quick. You know, his, his wit didn't diminish by the fact that, you know, he, he'd lost his ability to speak. In fact, mm-hmm. I think it got sharper. Yeah. Um, so it was great to have Roger as your mentor, as your editor, as the person that assigned you things. It was terrifying because he was my idol. Yeah. But I grew to realize that he had our best interest at heart as a writer. He made me uh, he gave me the best advice I ever had as a writer. Yeah, of course, I knew him uh, through the television show, through Siskel and Ebert. And then I, I because of that. Um, when I could, I would, you know, I would read his, his print reviews, but I have to say for me personally, I didn't really realize what an impact he had on other writers and seemingly what, what an amazingly accessible and thoughtful and kind person he was until he was in the final stages of, of the cancer that, you know, eventually took his life. Right. A lot of people didn't realize that. Well, we did because we were beneficiaries of, of his kindness and his, you know, time. And he if he found a writer he thought was good, he would showcase you. And he called them the far flung correspondents, people from all over the world. Nobody was doing that, getting a, a Polish film critic or a film critic from South Korea or a film critic from, you know, Brazil and putting them on the site and letting them speak about either their countries, movies, or just movies in general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you see as the the role of the film critic? Uh, I, I think what my, I think the role is differs from what film criticism tells you it is. Okay. So I think my job is to tell you what I thought of the movie. Mm-hmm. And if you like what I'm saying, if you think that what I'm saying is interesting, then you can go see that movie regardless of whether I liked it or not. Sometimes I like to try to save you some money and tell you don't waste your money on this. But if you really want to see the movie, don't listen to me. Yeah. You know, go see it anyway and come back and you'll realize that I was right. No, (laughs) (laughs) I I think that, but I think a lot of film criticism is meant to tell you what you're supposed to go see and what you're supposed to like. Yeah. And if you don't like that, then something is wrong with you. <laughs> and yeah. I think the readers throw that back at me all the time. So they accuse us of doing that. Yeah. But I hear it more from their side because I like trash. So when people say you're a snob, I go back and point out eight or nine movies that no snob in their right mind would enjoy. Yeah. 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 So what, so what do you think, between the thumbs up and the thumbs down, there's a lot of movies that exist in between them. So, you know, when you mention trash, like sometimes, you know, I'll see a movie that I feel like didn't really hold together as a movie, but I would watch it again because of three or four different scenes that really worked well, or maybe a particular performance, or maybe even sometimes it's like, well, you know, the story didn't hold together, but man, the cinematography was amazing. So as a, as a film critic, 
do you try to um, uh, not necessarily deal in a binary thumbs up, thumbs down? This is good. This is bad. Binary is only good in computers. It's not good. That's why I hate <laughs> Rotten <know>. Tomatoes. <laughs> I hate Rotten Tomatoes because number one, they always kept messing up and giving my reviews the wrong tomato. <laughs> and, and also because as you say, it's binary. The There is the whole uh, group of movies that I refer to as 2 a.m. on cable movies. <laughs> sure. Movies that I didn't give a good review to, but if they were on at two o'clock in the morning on cable, I'd probably sit there and watch them. And that's completely different from, you know, something that's a masterpiece. It doesn't mean that it's everything is bad. I mean, a, a two and a half star review, which is the review I hate writing more than anything else. We have a four star scale at the globe. Mm-hmm. I've always tried to adhere to a four star scale. Uh, when I wrote for Vulture, they had a five star scale, which drove me bananas. Uh, <laughs> what is the difference between four and five stars? And can well, you think of, can you, can, can you give me um, examples of, of if you, if you made any five star reviews, what they were? Well, I had I had to do it for television, not for movies. I would okay. not do it for movies. I, I, I was the uh, recapper for Silicon Valley, the TV show, which made oh, sure. sense because I was working in Silicon Valley. Sure did. The show that, was about my people. That sure uh, was, and I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> I, I did too, and I, I I knew my world enough to be able to predict the end of the show and the oh, first recap great. I wrote. And boy, <laughs> did I rub that in! Like <laughs> it's in print, so you know I wasn't lying to you. Yeah, exactly. I, you You've know. got the historical record, right? To me, it's a mathematical thing, and it's really silly. And that Roger hated stars. Most critics hate stars. Yeah, they hate having to do a rating system. And if you're really going to be mathematical about it, the scale of zero to ten or something would be a much better scale than four or five stars in terms of dividing things up. Sure. But to me, three out of five stars, people think is a positive thing, but that's 60%. And I operate on the old public school scale of <laughs> unless it's 70%, you fail. Exactly. So, right. Yeah. So three stars is 75% out of four, that is. And that that's a good review. Two and a half star reviews, they make you work. And sometimes they're the most fascinating reviews to write because at least for me, I have to tell you why I'm not giving the movie a good review. And that it came so close and it didn't seal the deal. And a lot of times that forces a lot more introspection on your part. It makes them a lot harder to write. But sometimes they're the most fascinating reviews to to look at in retrospect or even in general as a reader because it's a little bit of a battle. I have to convince myself and you that I'm not going to give it the extra half a star to bring it up to a positive review. And I got to tell you why. And sometimes it's the most interesting thing that certain things work really well. And it's one big thing did not work. And that's what sinks the entire picture. Sure. Do you think that um, certain filmmakers are kind of damned by the expectations they themselves have set? So, so in other words, one filmmaker might, prompt you to give a two and a half star review simply because based on their history, you were expecting something far greater, grander, either funnier or more impactful. Um, but what they delivered was sort of serviceable. Whereas if that were their first or second film, you know, they would have come away with three or four stars. No, there's one exception. And I'll tell you who that one exception is in a minute. But when I walk into a movie, I walk in and I try to wipe the slate completely clean. Mm-hmm. This is your next movie. What you did 10 movies ago is somewhat irrelevant, unless it's thematically similar. You know, everybody has their, I'm going to use the word fetishes, you know, Scorsese has guilt. 
Yep. Tarantino is feet. His and feet? Tarantino is feet. He's got a foot fetish. Have you seen any of his movies? He's, <laughs> his last movie, the, the <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He, yeah, there's he, a lot of dirty purpose. feet in that movie. Well, he did that on purpose because <laughs> people are always saying, you have a foot fetish. He's like, I'm going to really show you what we got here. <laughs> I didn't know that, but now, of course, I'm, I'm fascinated with and it. He's exploitation in feet. That's Tarantino's stock and trade. That's his thing. <laughs> and for Scorsese, it's Catholic guilt. You know, and yeah. for Spielberg, it's divorce. Yeah. And for yeah. David Lynch, it's whatever is in his creepy little mind the moment he does something. I try to go for, in. For Terrence Malick, it's just waves and waves of It's grass. spinning white women. <laughs> uh, we made the joke about that. This poor dizzy white woman spinning around. And then someone went in their hands through some grass or some wheat. <laughs> and, and the magic hour. Those are the things that, that turned Terrence Malick on. Yes, absolutely. The but magic hour. <laughs> you try to go in. And the reason why I do is because there are a lot of directors I don't like. David Lynch, for example, I'm not a fan of David Lynch at all, but I've seen every single one of his movies. And if I were expecting something like I was holding him to something, I wouldn't have done that because I don't like him. In the, I in go the range of David film, David Lynch films that you do not like, is there one that inches toward being being palatable for you? Oh, no, I, there are a couple of movies I actually like outright. I love The Straight Story. I like Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to watch Twin Peaks. I was, when it was on originally, I gave up after a season and a half, like most people did. Yes. But I watched him. You know, I, I find him fascinating in terms of he doesn't really care if you, as the audience member, is happy. Right. And I tend to, even if I don't like the movie, I tend to give a director credit for marching to that beat of their own, you know, of their own drum. I think it's funny that people try to dig through and figure out what he's telling you. I think Lynch finds it funny too. He's like this, I had a nightmare about this. I just put it on the screen to scare you. It has no other relevance whatsoever. And people are writing dissertations. That that has to make him laugh. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I kind of feel the same way about Bob Dylan. Like if he, exactly. if If he recorded his grocery list, somebody would spend hours and hours and hours trying to deconstruct it. What would that sound like? You know, need some peas. <laughs> exactly. How's it feel? No. I like it. Dir- now you put a little backbeat to that. I think <laughs> yeah, you got the, the one director who always gets two and a half stars for me. And I, I don't know why is Shane Black. Okay. Outside of Lethal Weapon, which he didn't direct, he wrote. Every single movie Shane Black has done has gotten two and a half stars for me. The nice guys. The Iron Man movie he did, um, The Last Boy Scout. It's something about Shane Black that it's like he almost works for me and then he just doesn't. That's interesting. So the two and a half star review. Sorry, Mr. Black. It just seems to constantly find him from me. So that's the only one. In your current position as the film critic for the Boston Globe, how many films say a week, say, um, are you viewing and then writing about? Well, it depends on what's going on. The Thanksgiving week was nightmare because there were seven movies coming out mm-hmm. and I had to do seven reviews. And I also was off three days out of that week. Yeah. yeah. In fact, one of the reviews, there wasn't enough room in the paper. They had to run it the next next days after. Yep. But that was my record is seven. But normally it's about two or two in a critic's notebook piece. Like this week, there's two and and a critic notebook piece that usually runs on Sunday. But it could be four or five. It depends on what's going on. And what's your... um 
uh, where are you seeing the movies these days? Are you going to a screening room? Are you being sent screeners and you're watching them in the comfort of your home? Well, it depends. Now I'm, I'm a member of the National Society of Film Critics. So mm-hmm. this is the time of year where they start sending out DVDs of movies they want you to vote for. Right. And boxes of things that they're trying to bribe you with. It's unfortunate that they send me these boxes after I've already seen and panned the movie. But thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it depends. Um, there are some screenings and there are some screeners. It's a little bit better for me being down here because New York always has multiple screenings and has a lot more screenings. Right. Than in Boston, just I guess by virtue of, you know, the market. Yep. Um, so a lot of times I'm able to get a better thing to sit in a theater than I would in Boston, but it depends. Some, some of them don't want to send you screenings, even if they do exist, they want you to see it in the theater. Have you had an experience where you're, you're seeing a movie in order to write about, and you've seen it both maybe at home, maybe even on a computer, and then you've seen it in the theater and it's changed your impression of the film? Not really. Well, I'll give one example, RRR, which I saw on Netflix because it it was on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a huge, I saw it late. I saw it later than when it played here if we in the theater for a couple of months, but it was primarily on Netflix. And I watched it and I got, finally got around to watching on Netflix. I had left the theater here by the time I got to it. Hmm. And then uh, I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot. It was going to make my 10 best list. And then the they had a screening of it at an IMAX at the Lincoln Square here in New York. And I went and it was like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, wow. Because by this point, people had really gotten into it. So people were showing up dressed as the characters. They were getting up and dancing in the aisles. I did, they were doing this in March. I just wasn't at a screening of it. And when I saw it on the big screen and, and it pushed it up the list, but it was still, it was always going to be a four-star movie. It was a four-star movie when I saw it on Netflix, but this pushed it up the list. It's number two on my list. It would have been probably four or five. I just stayed seeing the Netflix thing, but I'm used to watching stuff on the computer. The downside is they put watermarks on it that drive me crazy. Yes. So I get to look at my name, my email. Yeah. Or like the length of the movie. (laughs) Right. Right. So I, I would prefer to see it in the movie theater if possible. I was going to ask you about your your top 10 list for 2022. Have you put it together yet? Has it been published? Yet? It's online. It was online. It went in, It's in the paper on Sunday. It was online okay. on Thursday or Friday. And you said the number two film was RRR? Yes. I don't even know that I've heard of it. It's been around. It's very popular. There's a, a video uh, of them doing a Natu Natu dance that's very, very big. Uh, it's a clip from the film. In fact, the song will probably get an Oscar nomination for best song. I got to check it it's out. It's a three-hour movie. Uh, oh, God, I'm sorry. The, the, the gentleman is in SS something. It'll come to me. Uh, an Indian director. It's, it's an Indian film. Okay. It's uh, from Tollywood, if I'm not mistaken. Ah, all right. And it's, I've seen some of his directors out of the movies, and they're all insane in terms of he really bring it's three hours long. You get three hours worth because that is everything in it. <laughs> yeah. That one, I think I want to see on Netflix that, that I can pause when I, when I need to, the, the, it, it has an intermission. In fact, the movie has an intermission, which I love. They, they gave an intermission, but Marvel refuses to give you one. Oh yeah. Fast. And, and Avatar had no intermission. It's, it's longer than this movie and had is no it, intermission. 
Yeah, I don't know if I'm mistaken on this, but I think the last U.S. release with an intermission was Reds back in 1981. It's Hateful if you went to the Roadshow. Oh, was it really? What do you mean the Roadshow? Was that multiple films? No, no. The Roadshow was the one that they put on 70 millimeter that the Tarantino had done specifically for certain markets. Oh. It was slightly different than the version that most people saw. The oh, version that most people saw did not have an intermission. I love that. I love that insider take on on versions of films. That, Movies uh, should have intermissions. They did it for a long time back in the day, and it makes sense. You can get up and pee. That they, Jack Cameron's complaint was, you know, you you can get up and go pee. You don't have to sit through my entire movie. But I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> yeah. You what if you go at the wrong time? <laughs> so what? So you told us number two. What made number one on your top after ten Sun list made year? number one? After Sun, I saw at the New York Film Festival. It's a yep. small movie directed yep. by Charlotte Wells about her. It's all semi-autobiographical about her last trip with her dad. They went on vacation together. And that's what this movie is about. And it it stuck with me. It wouldn't go away. It, it wasn't, I didn't think it would be my number one movie of the year, but when I sat down to do the list, like I thought about it and I realized that this movie kind of had it hooked, has it its hooks in me. And I really couldn't forget the things that emotional things that I felt while watching it. Can you think of a film in 2022 that you were eagerly anticipating and you were underwhelmed by or disappointed in yes three thousand years of longing oh yeah okay the idris elba tilda swinton george miller genie movie i dream of ildris i dream of idris is what i called it (laughs) yeah yeah you didn't hesitate on that 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 was it quickly came to mind it is the second worst movie of the year what was the first Uh, blonde oh interesting so i had the Okay, so this is interesting. This to me gets to that category that I was talking about it earlier. Like I can totally understand why people were really disliking that movie on a number of levels. I can also understand giving the guy props for a certain audacity. Um, does that does that does that win any favor with you? Nope. Okay. <laughs> uh, why did you hate it so much? You know, George Miller is one of my favorite directors and, and yep. Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton are great actors. And this movie didn't work at all, at all. And sometimes when you're a genius, you make things that are really, really bad. Yeah. And worse than someone who wasn't a genius would make. With Blonde, to me, it, it, again, same thing problem I had once upon a time in Hollywood and a bunch of other movies. And then with The Whale, which is number three on my 10 worst list, um, Martyrdom is overrated. And what he did to Marilyn Monroe in this movie was mm. just vile. Yeah. And I felt that he and when you listen to him talk, he doubles down on the fact that, yeah, I made a nasty, sick and since I've seen Marilyn Monroe, a real person, mind you who was much more talented than he ever gave her credit for, mm-hmm. you know? And so to me, it was not just the fact that he did it, but also I thought the filmmaking was garbage. So more importantly, how I felt about how he treated Marilyn Monroe was part of it, but I've seen movies that I didn't agree with the director's vision, but I still thought had some merit. I don't yeah, think there's for, any redeeming value Blonde, in this at all. And for Blonde, the director is Andrew Dominic. Yes. Um, and I had seen his two previous movies, Assassination of Jesse James uh, and Killing Them Softly. What, what were your what was your feeling on each of those? I was indifferent. 
Um, I was indifferent that old to two and a half star indifference. Well, uh, well two and a half star for, for Jesse James. I don't yeah. remember what I gave killing soft, killing softly, but it wasn't positive review. Uh, there were some things about it. I, I liked. And even in movies that I give one star to, there's gotta be something that I liked. Right. Otherwise I give it no stars. Uh, you know, you can find a lot, of, you can find some good and some very bad movies. And I, I think it makes you matter when you see someone giving their all to a film and the film is just doing them wrong the entire time. I think it makes me matter. I don't know about other critics, but it's certainly, like, this is a damn good performance and this is a horrible film. Yeah. It makes me even madder at the movie. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. That's, a, that's an interesting take on it. If, if someone said to you, Odie, we're, we want you to produce this year's Oscars. How would you, would you, first of all, would you take, take them up on the offer? And yeah. if you did, <laughs> but if I had to, if you had to, right. No choice in this, I guess. Um, and it's a big paycheck. So you want to say yes to this. Um, what would you change about it? Well, they, they put all the categories back. So I'm glad they did that. They were taking some of the categories and having them announced before. They're not showing people winning the award. If you win an Oscar, they should allow you to give a speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You won. I mean, this is a big deal, whether you think Oscars are nonsense or not, you know, they won. So let them have their speech. I'd give them more than 45 seconds, but not too much longer. I wouldn't chase them off the stage. <laughs> um, if they're interested, they're boring, you know, yeah. do that orchestra. But they, they blasted people off the stage that will be giving great speeches or didn't even let people speak. So I would get rid of that. You know, if I won an Oscar, when the orchestra started up, if I was finished, the conductors get hit in the head with that Oscar. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. I, I would change that thought. and make it short to get rid of some of these stupid numbers in it. So that it's shorter. <laughs> you mean the production numbers? And I used to love those when, when the montages were done by a, a gentleman who used to do them, Bill, what's his name? Uh, he used to do, no, no, no. The, the guy that used to do the, Montages. He would do these little one and two minute montages of movies that were really, oh, really good. Yeah. I'm talking about like the stupid skits that they do. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. One of the things that just always blows my mind about particularly the Oscars is, you know, you've got this is essentially a three hour ad for movies. Yeah. And if you break down those three hours, the number of minutes devoted to actually showing clips from the movies is minuscule. I'd bring that back too. They used to back when I was a kid, they would show a little clip. Like you got to pick the Oscar clip, like mm-hmm. the scene that you wanted them to show of your acting. Mm. And I always found that fascinating what people picked. They'd stop doing that. And then they started bringing it back slightly. I would yep. definitely bring back, here's why we nominated this person. And you were the person bringing, given the clip. So basically, it's what you thought was your Oscar clip. Cause they always say that your Oscar clip, people don't realize, don't know what that is anymore. Mm-hmm. But for years, they would always show a little bit of, you know, a couple of seconds of your performance. Do you have a feel? Do you, do you have a preference as to whether you're first encountering um, a, a, a film via a streaming service uh, or whether it's through you, you know one of the um, the studios that is gonna it's just gonna run theatrically for a period of time? And I mean, this is different than my question around you know uh, the environment that you're watching the movies in. But I guess like from a prestige standpoint, right? Do you do you feel like oh uh, this movie's being being released on Amazon Prime versus Apple versus Universal is putting it in IMAX. In the quality of the film? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. no, I, I don't. The number 10 movie on my list is Prey. Mm-hmm. Prey is a prequel to Predator. 
Okay. Why did not put this in a movie theater? I do not understand because it was the perfect stand up and cheer movie. It had a pedigree. It was the latest in line of predator movies. So it wasn't that people didn't know what this was and it went directly to streaming and it's number 10 on my top 10 list. So it's obviously a good film. It deserved to be in the theater and I don't know why they didn't put it there. Um, you know, in the Heights last year, I felt the same way. And Heights was number three on my 10 best list. It was, I thought it was a great movie. I saw it in IMAX in the theater, but it got streamed. It got put on HBO Max the same day. It got a theatrical movie. So, of course, it was a flop because why would you go to a movie where you can see it for free? Yeah. Oh. Yep. I don't, I don't, I, don't, I wonder, there, there, well, Netflix makes movies that I swear you can watch while you do the dishes. You can go away for 10 minutes and come back. And cause I've had to review several of them. Yeah. And I would go, I'm like, I'm the, the idiot for paying attention to this because they're made so that you can get up and go walk around and pay half a year of attention to it. Yeah. So I do think Netflix does this. Some of their movies are built like that, but in terms of something went to a streaming service as opposed to a theater, I don't judge it on whether I think it's got quality or not until I see it. Mm-hmm. And What's your take on the pol- the endless proliferation of um, superhero movies? You know, the Marvel universe, et cetera. Like, you know, I, I, I hear and read uh, certain people who cite that as evidence for kind of a uh, uh, degradation of the culture that, you know, movies used to be important, you know, um, and now they're all just variations on cartoons. You know, I'm not a huge fan of the superhero uh, movies. I because I didn't read comic books. I wasn't allowed to read comic books when I was a kid. Yep. The only superhero I can speak to with any intelligence is Spider Man, because Spider Man had a comic in the paper, and that's how I was able to sneak and learn about Spider Man. But when I was a kid, and Superman came out with Christopher Reeve, who was still the greatest Superman, it bored me to tears, and I was eight. <laughs> so I never really got into them. There are movies I really like. You weren't taken with Mar- Marlon Brando's performance? <laughs> you know, that's a whole nother podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I just, as I just his dad, right? He was Superman's dad in the first. Yes, movie. he was yeah. Superman's dad. And he took him to the fortress of solitude. <laughs> exactly. Uh, now, uh, anyway, the, I just never got into them. I love the Spider-Man, Sam Raimi movies, but here's the funny thing. What I, people that talk like that, they say this is the degradation of cinema. I'm not talking about people like Scorsese who had a valid point of what he said about these movies. They said it about Westerns. Hmm. And Westerns, look, Westerns were the biggest thing in Hollywood because they were cheap and they made a million of them back then. And people were saying Westerns outside of John Ford were lesser pictures. So they're saying the same thing. It's all cyclical. It's well, it was Westerns back then. It was something else before that, something else after that. So Marvel is this their turn in the barrel. That this is this a proliferation of them, as you say. And since there's so many of them, they're an easy target to be pulled into this. I do think they take up a lot of space at the multiplex and smaller movies can't get screenings. I will say that that is a negative. But yeah. at the end of the day, it's already ruining cinema. Is cinema going to die? Cinema has survived so many things. Marvel yeah. is not going to kill it. Yeah, yeah, that that that's an interesting point. So as we as we wind up 2022 and look toward 2023, uh, any particular films um, that you're particularly eager for? 
Are you going to laugh? Because people think they thought I was a snob throughout this entire conversation. I can't wait to see Cocaine Bear. (laughs) I saw the preview. I saw the trailer last week and it blew my mind. (laughs) And and there's a movie coming out and the first is one of the first releases. And usually the January and February movies are bad. Yeah. They dump all the bad movies in January and February. Yeah, that used to be the way. It's still the way. Um, There's a movie called Megan. About okay. a killer robot dog looks like a Karen. <laughs> and I saw the trailer for it and I'm like, I have to review this movie. I don't care. I will fight to review this movie. As it's this looks like my kind of trash. So those <laughs> cocaine bear says the critic of the Boston Globe, soon to be shamed critic. <laughs> I can't wait to see this. <laughs> All right. I can't wait to read your review of it. Odie Henderson, film critic for the Boston Globe. Thanks so much for taking the time to uh, to chat with me today. And just quickly uh, re- remind our listeners where else they can find your work besides in, in the Boston Globe. Well, I've got plenty of years at RogerEbert.com and I've written a Criterion essay on the learning tree. And I my TV stuff is at Vulture.com. And there are several things I've done at Slant. And the past two years, I was at the Slate Movie Club at Slate.com. So these are things I had fun writing and doing um, before my gig at the Globe. Also, before I was the film critic, I did some freelance work at the Globe. So there's pieces that I wrote there before I got the official gig. That might be fun for some folks to read. Oceans of content. That's great. That's great to hear. Odie, this has been really fun. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat. Thank you.